Hello and welcome to the Coffee with Your Therapist podcast, the podcast where we talk with people in the therapy field about their careers, their work and the music they like all in 20 minutes. This episode we talk to Mark Smith, who is a senior clinical psychologist, a clinical lead with Rugby Players Ireland and also a past president of the Psychological Society of Ireland. Mark has some great insights on how to work with parents and how to communicate to them their importance to the child or teenager. We talk about how much Mark gets from being a GAA coach and how that benefits the kids, the parents, and also even the coaches. For some fun, we have a chat about a recent football match that I think both of us got more than a little pleasure out of. Music is important in Mark's world and he also uses it in his work as a tool to let people understand themselves a little better. Finally, we play out on a banger of a tune. I know you're going to enjoy Mark's communication skills, insight and energy. The podcast is sponsored by MindGuard. We work with therapists and their clients to reach better outcomes in a faster, more insightful, secure and trusted process by using our MindGuard app. Contact us if you're a therapist, a clinic or an online therapy platform provider at mindguard.com. Enjoy the podcast. Sure, sure. Uh, you're, you're the sports too. We'll talk about something big that happened this week later, okay? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, okay, so I'm, I'm talking to Mark, Mark Smith, who, as I understand, is the ex-president of the Psychological Society of Ireland, a practicing therapist, and seemed to have a wide range of interests. If that's fair, Mark. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Not at all. Glad to be here. Right, how did you get into psychology therapy? Was, was this always something you were interested in? Uh, it, no, yes, it, it was there at the back of my mind. Um, I, I'd originally, I thought about a variety of different careers: accountancy, pilot, guards, builder, army. You know, a lot of the the stuff that was in the family, and realised that for a lot of them, it wasn't within my skill set. And I developed a, a curiosity for psychology because I'd I found a textbook in my granny's one day. I was bored, and I found a textbook from the nineteen fifties for psychiatric nursing. Because um, my, my aunt was one, and it seemed a bit interesting. And in talking to a different aunt, I was trying to explore it a bit more. And there was a, a local seminary in Carlo where I went to school. And my aunt was the registrar of the college. And she said, well, do you know what? On, on a Tuesday morning, the, the priests do an introductory module to psychology. Um, what have you got on a Tuesday morning? And I checked, and I had, like, religion, I think English or something. So I had good enough relationship with the principals. So I said, look, I'm kind of curious about this. It'd be kind of a couple of weeks of an introductory course. Any chance I could kind of skip down in six year and do that course with the priests just to yeah. get a taste for it. And he's like, yeah, Grant. So I did. Uh, and, and I like that, you know, that, that that game of the two truths and a lie. So I always show in that, you know, I studied in a seminary. And uh, really? <laughs> Re- really? But it actually, it actually is true. So your, your holiness is coming through, Mark. So. Oh, I, I, I doubt it that much. <laughs> but the... Um, it was a good experience and there was a lovely lady there called Betty Cody from UCD and, and she gave me kind of a flavour and I went, you know what, yeah, I think I want to do this. So I kind of pursued it at that point and it was interesting. I did a careers fair last week in a secondary school and they're all worried about the points and about how high they are. And I said, look, I repeatedly even searched to try, try and get um, into the course that I wanted. And I got the grand total after a full year of repeating of five more points. Um, I kind of I grandiose notions, thinking, you know, maybe 150 more. But that was <laughs> quite an experience breaking that to my parents that a whole year and I got five more. And to make it worse, to really rub salt in the wound, I had enough points the first year to get the course that I got. 
So, but uh, I, I, I've often thought about maybe I was it was a year to mature, but um, looking back, and I'm not really sure that was achieved either. So. Well, listen, we won't talk about maturity in teenage boys. Just, I have a teenage I, I'm thinking boy. about maturity in middle aged men. <laughs> uh, we can always do better, can't we? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Always a work in progress. Yeah, yeah. So that's pretty interesting. I mean, I, I'm guessing. Look, I don't, I don't. I'm just sort of learning about the whole area of psychology. It's one of the long term trends. I think is the movement from a medical view to a, a more holistic view of the client. Would that be fair? I mean, is where was it at when you got into it, and what what changes have you seen through your career? I, I think that move had had very much started already by the time that I I can kind of came through my undergrad and my masters and. By the time I started my clinical training, it, it was very much more of the, the kind of biopsychosocial model that, that encompassed all three aspects of, of the determinants of, of what impact on our mental health. And I think what I liked at that time and I continue to like is that no one model predominates. So it's not about the biological being better or worse or explaining more than the others. And I think there's been a lot more recognition of the kind of social determinants of, of mental health that if you're working with a, a young person trying to help them improve their mood, but you're sending them back home into a, a house where there's a risk of homelessness, where maybe dad has just lost his job, where the family relationship are breaking down, or one of the parents is struggling with addiction, that you know really there's only so much that you can do unless you're looking at the whole system and, and the environment and, and the supports of the family and not just the child. And I think when I started off in, in, in CAMS, so the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services first, we had this wonderful clinical director who was one of the, the founders of family therapy in Ireland. And, and everything, the entire ethos of the clinic was all about the family and understanding the child through the lens of, of the family unit and how you support the family. Um, unfortunately, she, she had to retire, which is a great shame. Mm-hmm. But I think that legacy of, of what she brought to that clinic, that ethos has always stayed with me. And that you have to look at, at how you empower, support, understand parents as much as the child. And I think this idea that you would you would sit down with a seven or eight year old and expect that you were going to give them skills to be able to manage life mm-hmm. without looking at, well, are the family able to support themselves? Can can the parents support the child? So I think that that systemic family view, certainly working with, with children and adolescents, I think is is crucial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's very interesting insight, and um, yeah, I mean the the impact of the family, particularly on adolescents, is just um, incredible. So it's, um, I mean, it's a source of so many problems going forward, isn't it? It's it's a source of problems, but the angle I take on it, and, and one of the the things that that parents struggle most with is self doubt. Um, and one of the messages I want to get across to parents is that they're also their child's greatest resource. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know when 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 it when a baby comes out, they, they can't communicate. They lie there, they poo, they cry, they sleep, eat, and continue that cycle. And, and when the child and the baby cries, the parent has no idea what's going on for them mm. because they're just crying. They can't tell us. But a parent does a good enough job of trying to figure out, okay, is it wind? Are they tired? Are they hungry? I'll figure it out, and I'll keep this child safe, and, and I'll, I'll work with them, and I'll give them whatever they need, love, care, attention, unconditional positive regard. And unfortunately, what happens is that when they become kind of preteens and teens, parental confidence goes off a cliff. Hmm. And they think, I don't know what to do anymore. I don't know how to communicate with my child. I don't know what's wrong with them. 
and many times they do and and it's it's always interesting dynamic when parents come into me and we would chat about their kids or their teenagers and they end up just confirming for them and validating what they already knew mm-hmm. but they just needed somebody else to steer them that that their self-doubt wasn't warranted that that they were on the right the right direction and that it was I suppose trying to instill a, an idea of good enough parenting right that many of the teenagers struggle with ideas of perfectionism that they have to be the best athlete 600 points a body like someone off a supermodel and I think parents sometimes almost kind of get a contagion effect from that mm-hmm. I think that they have to be beyond reproach as parents flawless never make a mistake not be human and I think that's one of the things that I have in conversations with parents is you're human. So are your kids. So therefore not everything is going to go according to plan. And sometimes we got to adapt. Um, and it's about an idea of good enough rather than perfect. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. I mean, I'm having raised a couple of teenagers and actually raising one at the moment. Um, the, your, your idea is uh, the baby that you don't know what the baby wants, mm-hmm. but you figure it out it's still pretty true uh, yeah. about the teenagers. But, um, I mean, if I learned anything, it's just keep the communication going. And, um, you know, the bad report from the school is not not the end of the world. You know, just keep keep them calm, keep them going forward. It's sort of like, um, yeah, I suppose a lot of love in it, you know what I mean? And that's, for, for want of a better word, I mean, that's, I think that's a big thing with uh, teenagers. So, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's about kind of a, one of the greatest challenges of being a teenager is trying to get a sense of acceptance from your peers to the acceptance of myself that I'm, I'm okay. I'm good enough. And that other people would think I'm good enough. And that's a very difficult thing to do because when the group of teenagers that you're hanging around with are in a kind of constant state of flux or their own identity and their self-doubt, it's hard for them to give acceptance to others. So one of the, the greatest challenges, but also the greatest benefits from a teenager is that when they go out in the world, interact with their peers, they experience self-doubt, they worry about fitting in, they struggle with fitting in, that they come back to to a solid attachment in that relationship at home mm-hmm. and they experience acceptance, they experience love. And that allows them to, to kind of recharge those batteries and go back out again. And I remember having a session once with a parent trying to explain this idea of, of a secure base, of that mm-hmm. secure attachment piece about the, the teenager going out in the world. And um, I just, random question, but I said to the parent, you don't happen to have a robot Hoover, do you? <laughs> okay, where is he going with this? What, seriously, what, what, what planet is this guy on? He can't even stay on track. Yeah, where are you going with this? Where, where am I? That's a very good question, Pat. But I said to him, I said, look, well, the robot goes out and it does its work and it, it goes around the house and does its job and it cleans it. And then it has a, an internal sensor, a battery that lets it know that, you know what? Actually, I'm running low. And it knows and it goes back to the docking station and it plugs itself in and it recharges and it, it gives itself a chance to go again the other day. Mm-hmm. And the parent is like, oh, so I'm the docking station. I said, now you got it. That's really so good. It's about finding something that makes sense to the parent, not trying to force them to understand, you know, the psychological terms and the terminology, but finding an analogy that fits with their everyday life that they can connect with and go, now I, now I get it. And, and there's a lovely phrase that, that comes out in sessions with people where they say, God, yeah, I, I never thought of it that way. Mm. And I always get a great sense of satisfaction out of that, that it's, you know, part of this experience of therapy is just opening up other possibilities, other ways of looking at the world. You're not saying it's it's right or it's the only way, but it's a different way, because when we get stuck in our mental health, it's we get stuck on one view of the world, one view of ourselves. 
mm-hmm. and that sometimes that stuckness can really impact us. So it's about just being able to have, I think, kind of flexibility in our thoughts that we can see other perspectives and that allows the, the ability to adapt in theory. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, Mark. You can see your experience coming through and, and communicating with people. Now, one of the hot topics in the news these days is what is a psychologist? And this week there's been a, a RT Investigates program about um, someone with false credentials. We're not, we won't get into the details of that, but um, you you have strong uh, feelings about this or about regulation of psychologists. I think I'm not the only one. I think everybody within the Psychological Society of Ireland is. And, and we've been looking for this for, for years and years. Um, you know, self-regulation doesn't work, as that program has, has highlighted. And I think it's about it, two things happening. It's about protecting the public, first and foremost. Um, and I think we always have at the core of a principle of do no harm. Um, and I think also then it's about protecting the integrity of the profession about that that sense of trust that people should have within the profession when you go to someone that when you're at your most vulnerable that you feel that this person has the skills training to be able to help you and support you in a compassionate safe and evidence-based way but i suppose the big concern that we have is that the approach that's been proposed by government and by koru is not actually going to protect the public that they're they're overcomplicating it and i was tweeting about it last night that in 1991 in Ontario and Canada, they just protected the title psychologist and every derivative of it. Mm-hmm. Because the, the current proposal that if they protect the specialisms only, which we understand to be like clinical counselling, educational, is that a person just doesn't sign up to the register as a clinical psychologist and say, I'm a child psychologist, I'm a school psychologist, I'm whatever the hell psychologist I kind of want to be, and nothing can, can prevent that. Okay. So what we have to do is protect the title first and then the derivatives. Or, or even if you are a clinical psychologist, do something um, really, really wrong, get brought before Koru, told you're not allowed to practice, you drop the term clinical, you practice away. So the, the, the model they're proposing is inherently flawed. The argument that it's too complicated to protect the title of psychologist just doesn't stand up because so many other jurisdictions have already done it. Mm-hmm. So I suppose what we're, we're trying to do at the moment is just create this the sense of awareness that it can be done, that we don't want to go after low-hanging fruit around the specialisms, because within the public service, it's quite well-regulated to get into the public service in the HSE or prison service or TUSLA. There is very, very stringent checks made in your qualifications. But in the private sector, there are no such checks. There's no statutory need or legal need to register to call yourself a psychologist. So it's it's something that we're going to have to keep that pressure on with government. Um, again, for those those two really important reasons: number one, to protect the public, and two, the integrity of the profession. So I think it's something that if as a psychologist you don't feel strongly about, then there's something something amiss there. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting because I'm actually a chartered engineer, which I take some pride in. But the, the, even though engineering is actually a protected term, it's actually used and abused by everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know pretty well effectively anyone can call themselves an engineer but like uh, particularly for myself like i had a engineering career which i was proud of you know there was certain um standards we met so i totally got it but uh, okay so you're a big twitter man and um <laughs> i noticed you made it sent a tweet that there was a very important event in your life i'm sure after getting married having kids or whatever else happened to you uh this week <laughs> and uh i uh, it, it, it is that, and one of the the things when I work with people, one of the things I caution them against is when you get anxious about something, about your ability to predict the future, because anxiety 
will will twist and, and morph, uh, not to a good way, your ability to think what is going to happen in the future. And as a very, very long-suffering Liverpool fan, um, <laughs> my, my, my predictions and aspirations for the game at the weekend couldn't have been any lower. Um, so my anxiety was... I had my phone put away over beside the uh, the TV because I just couldn't look at it because my main WhatsApp group I'm in with the lads, it's eight United fans, one city and me. And I just, <laughs> I couldn't put myself through it. I was like, I can't look at these t- messages hopping in and just laughing at me. Um, and then suddenly something strange happened. And, and it's interesting, just especially over the course of the season, you know, Liverpool scored one, they scored two. And, you know, we saw that with Real Madrid, they scored two and lost badly. <laughs> and even then, you just don't want to have the hope. And then you're starting to think, hang on a second here. I, I, I think we're in with a chance. And even my, my, my nine-year-old, who's a big fan, he couldn't watch it until they hit four. And then suddenly it was like, okay, I'll come watch now, Daddy, because I, I, think, I think we're okay. And, and what, what I loved about it was that he's, in his class at school, the majority United fans. And... Uh, just the following morning, he just got up with such a swagger. It was like he was going into a WWE event, throwing the shoulders, um, you know, walking in. I said to him, walk in, Connor, and just say, what's your favorite number? I think mine is seven. So, you know, <laughs> we got we to gotta take the wins when we can. Because no, you this, do. This weekend like, and lose. Yeah, some <laughs> like over, like Liverpool used to be the, uh, back in the 80s, I was an incredible team. And then, Man, you in the nineties. So, uh, so like we all know these things come and go, but we take we take our pleasures when we can. You know, I mean, it's um, oh, my, it's, it's essential. <laughs> yeah, my son-in-law. I'm sorry to all the Man U sports out there. Okay, but I'm sure there's psychological help. Uh, I'm sure contact Mark. I'm sure he'll be able to help you. <laughs> Somehow, I feel they're not going to want to come to me. <laughs> <laughs> You're a little bit biased on this one, eh, Mark? <laughs> just, just, just a tad. Yeah, you you do uh, participate in, or you support the. Uh, Kids sports, I'm, I'm guessing from what your your Twitter feed or yeah, I've been a a, a GA coach uh, with our, with our local club St Bridget's for a couple of years now, um, and, and they're they're a fantastic club. They're a great bunch of kids, um, and it's just it's really nice to get out there and just see them having such fun. And I think you know I will talk to young people that I work with about the importance of sport, about family, about working with friends, and and it's it's lovely to be able to see the kids actually do that. Um, and particularly, I think, with the girls section, because we know that there are big drop offs in, in girls sport, particularly from the age of about maybe 12, 13 onwards. And what we what's lovely with our under 12s group is that the numbers have been growing and we get more and more girls coming down each week. And, and I suppose it's it's lovely to think that we can keep them in that. Um, and that sense of it doesn't matter what school you go to, it doesn't matter what you look like. It's just you're a team and you play together and you have fun and you have the crack and you have the crack with the coaches. Yeah. And we we're really, really lucky. We've got a, a great large group of coaches, I think, compared to other kind of friends and family back home and different clubs. We're just really blessed and separated by how many, how many people we have that are committed to the club and to the kids, mm-hmm. um, irrespective of the weather, out weekend. And it's it's um, it's something I think I get a lot of enjoyment from. It recharges me that after work you can go out and you know that you're, you're going to go out and, and, and have that fun and, and show those kids that unconditional positive regard. Yeah. Whether you can kick kick the ball two yards or you can kick it thirty yards over the bar, you're still good enough, and that we we want you there, irrespective of your level of ability. Um, and I think we learn stuff, and like even with the kids talking about, you know, I can't kick off my bad foot. It's like, well, and a lot of this I've got from Twitter, not my own my own ideas, but you know, this idea that you don't have a bad foot, you've got a good foot and you've got a better foot. 
um, <laughs> because they, they do internalize it and it becomes a self-fulfilling That's prophecy. So I, 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 with me, it's my left foot. I've got literally no left foot. Mm. But when I was younger, I suppose that that message was that it's, it's just the foot that you haven't worked enough on yet. So right. I stopped trying with my left foot because it just never worked. But with these kids, if they think it's their bad foot, then, well, why am I going to try? Because it's bad. So you want to get these kids, not just in sport, but in general everyday life, moving away from this black and white idea that something is good or bad because yeah. if it's bad, that's a fixed piece. It's yeah, just, yeah, there's no motivation to try and work on it because that's it's just insight. bad. Mark, yeah. um, and, and there's lots of things in our lives where we do look at it in black and white terms. So when a, a young person comes into me and we might have a conversation about how their week has gone, oh, it's, it was bad. I mean, really? 24-7 for seven days. Well, well, no. Well, And again, you're just trying to, to see the grey and sometimes the blue. Um, that that our mindsets can just narrow down into A or B. And if it does, you've got, you've got nowhere else to go. So it's, it's about the gradients and everything else in between and, and helping to gradually see that um, rather than saying, you know, if they come in and you say, look, oh, it, it, it's been a bad week. Ah, no, it couldn't have been. Mm. So automatically what you're doing is I don't believe you. Yeah. I'm, inv- I'm invalidating your perception of it. So you might come back and say, oh, God, it's interesting maybe that you've you've seen it that way. I wonder you know, what else might have gone on and just gently exploring mm-hmm. rather than coming in and saying, no, you're wrong. It couldn't have been that bad. Because one thing that, that kids in particular and people are really, really good at is invalidating themselves, telling themselves that they're not good enough mm-hmm. or that their experiences are wrong and they shouldn't feel the way that they do. So one of the most powerful things that you can do when working with someone is say, yeah, I can see why you think that. I can see why you feel like that, even if it's something really, really negative. Because what you've done is you've created a sense of connection of I get you. And and in many ways, there's not many things that are more powerful than this piece of somebody in this world gets me, irrespective of of how I'm feeling. Even if it's really, really negative, I get you. Um, And that's very powerful. Yeah, no, I can see that. And um yeah, you know, the, you put the world of black and white when actually, it's might, as you say, it might be grey and white or something like that or whatever. Mm-hmm. Is it, so, listen, Mark, this has been really interesting. And thanks. Uh, you're, I think we could go on for another hour. But, <laughs> um, the, the, yeah, so on the podcast, uh, is music important to you? As a... It's not important to me. It's, it's essential. I couldn't cope without it. It's, That's great. It's, it's my I way of de-stressing. I don't guess. <laughs> really? Oh, I was going no, to like, it's... okay. I was going to put a bit of a kibosh. So sorry, Mark, but what sort of music do you like? Uh, I, I grew up in, in the early 80s, so it's it's kind of rock, poodle rock, you know, classics. Um, probably my my favourite band of all time is probably Pearl Jam when I was a teenager. Yeah, cool, um, yeah. But but um, Metallica, Nirvana, um, all of those kind of runs you Pro- proper music you know <laughs> guitars and drums and beats and, and getting in there and it's it's amazing how it, it works in different ways to different people i i find that sometimes you know like we all do we get angry we get frustrated and if i get particularly angry the only thing that calms me down is really really loud acdc mm. um because I, I need the music the tempo of the music the the volume of it to match how i'm feeling mm. and if, if if that's matching my internal anger and feeling i can connect and resonate with it and it brings me down so if you put on soft easy chill out classical music when i'm angry it's just not going to work so we got to find what works for us in different ways and sometimes it's just our way out and i I actually use it 
um, in sessions with people at the moment with these headphones. Really? So there's a there's a, a new, I think it's new anyway, type of music on YouTube called AD music. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it only works with headphones, but it moves. So it moves literally 360 all around your head at the same time. So when people are struggling, when their mind are going off into dark places or anxious places, I work with them in session and I play this, this song by, by Billie Eilish on AD on YouTube. And I get them to just follow the music, concentrate on where it's going, move it around, look wherever it's going. And they do. And at the end of it, I say to them, did your mind go anywhere else? Did it go to any of those dark thoughts, those anxious thoughts? I'm like, no, I was too busy trying to keep track of where it went. <laughs> and, and all you're trying to do is to show that, look, this doesn't magically change their world. It doesn't change everything. But what it does mm. is it shows them that they can get even two minutes respite yeah. from their thoughts, that mm. they don't automatically have to go with these negative, anxious thoughts and get trapped by them. That that even a two minute respite gives you a bit of hope, and and as soon as that's all you need. Okay, it's brilliant. And what would you like? Uh, what what's your playout song? Or if you want to name a few songs, but one to play out on, what do you like? Oh, I think it's got to be interesting, man. I think it's just <laughs> it's just timeless. Oh, it's powerful, I, isn't if, it? if if I was ever to be a a WWE wrestler, which both my physique and strength would, would never allow. But if I was, and that's your walking into the ring song, I think it is. it's 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 going to capture you every time. The tension, hasn't it? It's amazing. The build-up is brilliant. Yeah, no, listen, Mark, it's been brilliant talking to you, and thanks very much for being such an open and insightful guest. Thank you. Not at all. Thanks for having me on.